You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, go with me to the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 here in just a second. It's the second book of the New Testament. Right after Matthew comes Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 2. So we wrap up our series on pre-vival today. Uh, looking at the story of Jesus healing the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2. When I, uh, this is about 16, 17 years ago now, I was, in, I was in college. I just started at Bible college and was uh, training to go into ministry. And so the Wednesday night, we have, a, we have a Bible study on Wednesday nights. And my role, my first kind of task that I was doing as I was trying to get ready for ministry is I was in charge of setting up the chairs for our Wednesday night Bible study. In fact, my dad was the one who was teaching the Wednesday night Bible study. I think it was through the book of Ruth. And so I set up like 150 chairs in this room and all these people started coming for the Wednesday night Bible study so that the entire room got packed. I mean, just packed. There were no chairs left. And, and I sat in the last chair at the back right because I was kind of overseeing everything. So I sat in that, that last chair in the back right and my dad began to speak. And about three, four minutes into my dad speaking, coming in the back door was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. And she came in, there was no chair, and so she sat on the floor right beside me. And I thought, all right, here's my chance, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a gentleman, and I'm gonna offer her my chair, and then I'll do something nice for her, and that'll be my end to be able to start talking to her and maybe ask her out. And so I looked down at her and I said, hey, uh, do you want my chair? And she looked up to me and goes, no. And just went back to, to the Bible, and I was thinking, Okay, and then like a second later, her boyfriend came in and sat beside her, and I was like, oh man, this is awful. And so, so I was like talking to my college pastor at the time, uh, Jimmy, who was discipling me, and he, he's like, man, are there any, any girls in your life? And I said, man, there's this one girl, I think she's super beautiful, and he's like, why haven't you asked her out? And I said, well, I think she has a boyfriend. And he said, well, ask her out anyways. And I said, well, what, what if she says I'm dating somebody? He said, well, then just say, do you think it'd be weird for him if I took you out on a date? And uh, um, I didn't do that. I didn't have the courage to do that. So what I did was we went to the same church and same school. And so I would strategically place myself where I knew she was going to be. All right. Now say, there's kind of a, just you young people try to help you out here. There's a thin line, okay, between pursuing somebody and stalking somebody, all right? Like a very, there's a very thin line. And I can tell you what that line is, okay? You wanna, you wanna know what that line between pursuing and stalking is? Does she think you're attractive, okay? Like that's the, that's the key because if she thinks you're attractive, then it's cute that you're pursuing her. And if she doesn't think you're attractive, then it's creepy that you're stalking her, right? Okay, and so that's the thin line. And so thankfully, Ashley didn't think I was a creep, didn't think I was stalking her, and finally, after some months, and I was kind of sure she didn't have a boyfriend anymore, I, I, I worked up the courage and I asked her out, okay? And we started dating, and this summer we'll celebrate 15 years of marriage and uh, three kids. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's, been, it's been awesome. But those early days, let me tell you, you know, when you start dating somebody and you start falling in love with somebody, one of the things that I really wanted to do, because I was so crazy about Ashley and because we were falling in love, is... 
I wanted to introduce her to all of my friends and family. Like I wanted to get, I was crazy about her, I thought she was the greatest thing in the world. And so I wanted to introduce her to my parents. I wanted to introduce her to my three brothers. I wanted to get her around my friends. In fact, when we finally did, my family came in town because they weren't living in the same town as me anymore. They came in town and we went to like O'Charlie's, okay? And it was her first time around my younger brothers. And they sat there on either side of her at O'Charlie's and for like an hour just peppered her with questions, question after question, and she's doing a good job answering, and I was like, this is, this is awesome, this is the girl, this is the girl I wanna be with the rest of my life. But I was so excited about our relationship and, and, and was so just like falling in love with her that I wanted to get her around all the people that I cared about. And the same thing is true about our relationship with Jesus. Like if you're, if you're in love with Jesus, you're, you're crazy about Jesus and you're just so thankful for all the things that Jesus has done for you, then you wanna get everybody that you know introduced to this guy who's changed your life. Like here's, here's one of the things, we, as we talk about pre-vival and all the things that you need to do that, that are necessary for revival to break out and for there to be this movement of God and, and to change the world. And Pastor Trent's done a great job talking about prayer as one of those kind of prerequisites of, of seeking the Lord that, that get ready for revival. But one of the main other things that needs to happen for, for revival to break out is for the people of God to fall madly in love with Jesus Christ. Because here's, here's the deal, listen, it's good for you to learn a method for sharing your faith, okay? And there's like 101 of them out there, all right? You, do, you have evangelism explosion, three circles, the bridge, the Romans road, all these, sharing Jesus without fear. There's all these different ways that people have, have come up with these strategies for teaching you how to do evangelism and how to share your faith. But can I tell you this? I can teach you every single one of them. But until you are deeply in love with Jesus Christ, it's not gonna make a difference because you're not actually gonna use it. All that information and all that knowledge is great, but if your heart's not on fire for Jesus Christ, you're not gonna use it. And so the first thing that needs to happen for there to be a movement of God is for the people who say we're followers of Jesus to fall back in love with him. And our love can grow cold over the years, but, but we need to get it red hot again so that we can be used by him to make a difference in the world. And so we're gonna look at this story here in Mark chapter two. And really, as we, we see this story about these four men who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus and he has his life changed. Just what I hope happens today, what I've been asking God to do in this service is one, to help us fall back in love with Jesus Christ. And then two, because we are in love with him, that we'll be committed to do whatever it takes to get the people that we know and love to Jesus because we know that he can change their life. So let's look and see what happens here in Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two, verse one. We're gonna read down through verse 12. Mark wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, 
Your your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. May God bless the reading of his word. Two things I want us to see uh, in this story this morning. Number one, I want us to recognize that Jesus is the hero of the story. Okay, that Jesus is the hero of the story. I was raised in church and, and going on, on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and, and going to Sunday school class and vacation Bible school and all these different things. You may not even know what those things are. But, but I was raised all, in all those places and I heard this story all the time, okay? From teachers and from pastors, I heard this story all the time. And almost every time I heard it taught or preached, it was taught as if the point of the story is that the four guys were the heroes. Like these guys, because they were so determined to get their friend to Jesus, that that was the point of the story. And so you need to be so determined to get your friends to Jesus because that's what Mark chapter two is all about. In fact, I haven't heard one pastor who got kind of creative and he, he gave each of the guys names. Like he made up names for them. He said, There's, the, the first friend's name was Frank Faith. And, and Frank had so much faith that he thought, man, if we can just get our friend to Jesus, I believe Jesus can heal him. And then the second friend's name was Harry Hope. And Harry said to his friend, the only hope that you have to be healed is Jesus Christ. And then the third friend's name was Larry Love. And Larry said, I know Jesus loves you so much. If we could just get you to Jesus, I'm sure he'd heal you. And then the last guy's name was Dan Determination because he said, let's just quit talking about it and let's get our friend to Jesus. That was a sermon I heard when I was a a little kid about these four friends who were trying to get their, their friend who was paralyzed to Jesus. But the truth is, These guys are not the hero in the story. Who is the hero in the story? Jesus, the one who forgives their friend, the one who heals their friend and changes his life. This story is all about Jesus, the great forgiver who can forgive our sins and Jesus, the great healer who can give us new life. This story is all about Jesus Christ. Let me refresh your memory or or tell it to you for the first time if you've never never heard it. There's all of these rumors being spread about Jesus because he's performing all these miracles. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's he's preaching and teaching in ways that they've never heard before. And so all of these rumors in that region are going around about this, this teacher, this healer. And so because of that, when they find out he's back in Capernaum, which is kind of his home base for ministry, and, and, and probably at Peter's house, he, he, they find out he's back in Capernaum. They find out he's back at the house that he usually stays at. And so all these people flood to the house to see Jesus. And so Jesus begins to start teaching them from the word of God. And so these four guys who have this friend who's, who's paralyzed, who's laid out on a mat, can't move at all, can't stand up. They, they hear that Jesus is home, and so they get their friend. They say, man, we got to take our friend to Jesus. So they get him in his mat, and they go to this house where they know Jesus is going to be. And the crowd is so large, it's like spilling out into the front yard, and so they cannot get in. It's just jam-packed. Like, I'm sure the fire code was being violated, all right? And, and so what they did was, in, in those days, the homes there in Israel would have a staircase that goes up onto the roof of the house because there was no air conditioning, right? So if they wanted to cool off at nighttime when the sun went down, they'd go up on the, the roof of their house, kind of like a porch, and sit up there and, and take in the evening breeze and, and try to cool off. 
And so these, these men come up with a plan. They said, we're going to go up on the side of the stairs and we're going to dig away the roof and lower our friend down. Because the houses were made so that there were wooden beams, parallel beams that would go across the top of the house. And they would take like clay and mud and grass and, and compact it together and stick it between those wooden beams. And then the sun would come down, bake it, harden it. And so they would be protected from the elements. And so they go up on the house, they go to where they think Jesus is and they start digging away the, the roof of the house. And then they lower their friend down in front of Jesus and everybody kind of moves back so that this bed you know, can come down. And Jesus looks at their friend and they're thinking, man, we've done it. We're here. He's gonna get what he really needs. And Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. He says, when he sees their faith, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is doing what this man really needs. Because even more than needing physical healing, what this man needs is spiritual healing. He needs to have his sins forgiven so that he can be reconciled to God. And that's, that's our greatest need as well. Our greatest need is not make more money. Our greatest need is, is not to be cancer-free, as great as those things are and can be. Our greatest need is that we are sinners separated from a holy God who need to be forgiven by Jesus Christ so that we can be reconciled to God. And that's exactly what he does for this man. He forgives him of his sins because that's his greatest need. Now, in that room... Listening to Jesus are not just the people who've heard the great things that he's done and want to see him because they think that he's going to do something amazing. There's also critics in the room. There are people who are skeptical and think that Jesus is a fraud. And those men here are the scribes. These are guys who are experts in the Old Testament and experts in the Jewish law. And so they hear what Jesus says and they start thinking in their minds, this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Who does this guy think that he is? Now, let's be clear about something. They're partially right, right? They're, they're almost right. Only God can forgive sins. Let me put it this way. Like, yes, if somebody personally wrongs you, you can forgive that person, right? And you should. We're called to forgive as we've been forgiven in Christ. If somebody personally wrongs you, you can let it go. You can forgive them. But you can't just go around indiscriminately forgiving people who haven't wronged you personally, right? So in my, in my house, um, got three kids and, and one, a little boy. Uh, and so sometimes, like little boys do, he can argue and, with his siblings and he can even try to fight. And so like maybe some, some days, he like hits his sister, Emma Grace. His name's Judson, so he hits Emma Grace. And so what happens at our house? He gets, he gets punished and then we say, Judson, you need to go to Emma Grace, tell her you're sorry, and ask for her forgiveness. So he goes over, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have hit you. Will you forgive me? And she's like, yeah, I forgive you, right? And then everything's okay. And then they go on and do it again. <laughs> um, but what if Judson hit Emma Grace, and then Maddie, our oldest, came over and said to Emma Grace, Emma Grace, it's okay, I've forgiven Judson. Everything's okay. What would Emma Grace do? Say, what the heck are you talking about? Like, how can you forgive him? He didn't hit you, he hit me. Why in the world are you able to forgive him? And so when Jesus here says to a guy that he's never met, humanly speaking, he's never met this guy in his life, and this guy's never done anything personally wrong to Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, 
he's making a massive claim. He's claiming, I am God and I have the authority to forgive sins. Because here's the thing about sin. What makes sin so offensive, what makes sin so awful is that the primarily offended party in every sin is God himself. The most offended party every time a sin occurs is God himself. You think about King David. King David, you go back in in the Old Testament, read Psalm 51. It's his prayer of confession because David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, okay? He got her pregnant. Then in order to cover it up, he had her husband murdered. And when he's found out and he comes under conviction for what he's done, he's praying this prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. And this is what David says in Psalm 51. He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, humanly speaking, David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against her husband Uriah. David sinned against the nation that he was supposed to be leading and protecting. There's like nobody in Israel that David hasn't sinned against. And David says, first and foremost, against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Because God is always the most offended party. Listen, when you smart off to your parents, the most offended party is not your parents, it's God. When you cheat on a test, the most offended party is not your teacher, it's God. When you cheat on your taxes, the most offended party is not the government, it's God. When you watch pornography, the most offended party is not your wife, it's God. What makes sin so offensive is that it is a rebellion against God. And so our only hope, our only hope is to have the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And Jesus says, that's who I am and that's what I've come to do. I'm the son of God and I have the authority to forgive sins because every sin that has been committed first and foremost has been an offense against me, not the other people around you. And so Jesus claims to have this kind of authority. He's the great forgiver who's come into the world to reconcile people to God. And if you'll put your faith and your trust in him, you'll have all your sins, past, present, and future forgiven and you'll be made right with the creator of the universe. And so Jesus is the hero because he's the great forgiver. But not just that, not just that. Then Jesus, because he is God, understands in his mind, with with them not even speaking it out loud, he understands in his mind what they're thinking in their hearts. And so he calls them on it. And he says, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, The answer to that question is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Like I could point at anybody in the room and and you're thinking, please don't let it be me, right? Like I could point at somebody in the room and say, your sins are forgiven. And there's not one thing any of us can do to verify whether that's true or not. But if there's a paralyzed person in the room and I say, get up and walk, then guess what? They don't do it. I'm a fraud at that that moment. And so Jesus says, okay, here's what I'm gonna do because y'all are thinking about these things. I'm gonna prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins. And so what does he do? He says, get up, take your bed and walk. And the guy gets up, he's healed and he walks out. Now let me ask the question, how does Jesus healing the guy prove that he has the authority to forgive sins? Okay, how does Jesus healing this man prove that he has the authority to forgive sins? Well, here's, here's why. 
When, when man sinned against God, when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, a curse came into human existence so that now the world is broken and it doesn't work right, okay? It's broken, it doesn't work right. And so sin entered into human existence and then this curse, all of these consequences are now part of the human experience as a result of sin. And those consequences are sickness, pain, suffering, health problems, things not working right, and ultimately death. Now, I'm not saying that every time you get a cold or get a flu is because of some sin that you've committed. No, I'm just saying life in a broken world that's been broken by sin results in things going wrong and us hurting and us being in pain and us suffering. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, here's how you know I'm the one who has the authority to forgive sins because I've come in not just to deal with the penalty of sin, give you forgiveness, but I've come to do away with the consequences of sin. I'm gonna ultimately do away with all the sickness and pain and death in the world. Listen to what the Bible says in in Matthew chapter eight. You see this on the screen. In Matthew eight, again, in the context of Jesus doing these healings, this is what it says. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Now here's what's going on there. Matthew, when he's talking about the miracles that Jesus is performing, he quotes Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is a prophecy from Isaiah saying that when the Messiah comes, when the Savior comes, he's going to die on a cross for the sins of the world. He's gonna take on his own body the sins of the world and die on the cross so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. But Isaiah also says this, it's not just our sin that he's gonna take on himself at the cross, he's gonna take on our our illnesses, our diseases, our sickness, our pain. He's gonna take sin and the curse of sin on himself at the cross. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3, that Jesus became a curse for us on the cross so that we could be redeemed. And so what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's not just taking on sin, but he's taking on the consequences of our sin. And then three days later, he's coming back alive again because what he's saying is, listen, those who trust in me, those who believe in me, not only am I gonna forgive all your sin, but one day I'm gonna wipe away every tear from your eyes. Like this is what, these are what the miracles that Jesus, he's not just doing these miracles as like some kind of party trick to prove that he's God. He's giving us a preview of his kingdom. And he's saying, look, in my kingdom, there's no sin. In my kingdom, there's no paralysis. In my kingdom, there's no blind people. There's no deaf people. In my kingdom, there's no death at all. There's just life and life the way it was meant to be lived. That's what my kingdom is going to be like. And the way that Jesus accomplishes that is by taking all of that on himself at the cross. You think about what happens to Jesus when he dies. Jesus is the one who healed the paralyzed man. Guess what? He's laid out flat in the tomb. He cannot move. Jesus is the one who opened the eyes of the blind, but now his eyes are closed and he can't see a thing. Jesus is the one who healed the hearing of the deaf, but he cannot hear anything. Jesus is the one who raised the dead, and now he's dead. And three days later, God speaks into that tomb, and he says, son, get up and walk. And Jesus gets up and he walks out of the grave. And the promise is, that all who put their faith in him, that even if they die, they will hear from their heavenly father, get up and walk, and they will walk out of the grave and live with him forever. That's why Jesus is the hero. 
Because Jesus deals with our sin and he deals with all of the nasty consequences that come from our sin so that we can be made new. And because of that, because Jesus is the hero of the stories, the second thing I want us to see here, the last thing, is that we need to do whatever it takes to get people to him. Because he's the hero, we need to do whatever it takes to get people to him. These guys were desperate to see their friend's life changed. Desperate, and they, they saw Jesus as the only hope, and so they did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus so that Jesus could change his life. And we need to do the exact same thing. We need to do the exact same thing. Until we really fall in love with Jesus, and until we see Jesus as really the only hope that the people that we know and love around us have of having their life changed, until that is true of us, we will not do whatever it takes. But if we, if our hearts are on fire for Jesus and we recognize the only hope that this lost and dying world has is Jesus Christ, then we'll do whatever it takes to get our friends to Jesus. Again, listen, learning as much information as you can about the Bible is awesome, and you should. Learning as many methods of sharing your faith and being a witness for Christ, it's awesome, and you should learn all of those things. But what I've found in my 30 plus years of walking with Jesus is the people who are the best witnesses for Christ are usually not the people with the most information. The people who are the best witnesses for Jesus Christ are the people who are deeply in love with Jesus even if they don't know everything. In fact, when I, all the way back, when I, was, when I got saved as a, as a little boy, I'm talking about seven years old. Seven years old, I don't know anything. I've never been trained in how to share my faith. But I'm on, the, I'm on the bus on a field trip with my best friend, Nathan, and I'm, I'm looking at my friend, Nathan, and I recognize he's not a believer in Jesus, and I've just become a believer in Jesus. And so I said, Nathan, can I tell you what Jesus has done in my life? Can I tell you that I was a sinner and Jesus died for me? And because I put my faith in him, I've been forgiven and I'm gonna have eternal life. And I want that for you too. And there on that bus, I led my friend at seven years old to faith in Jesus Christ. Not because I knew a whole lot of stuff or gone through a lot of training, but just because I was just super excited about Jesus. And so until we get super excited about Jesus, all the training's not really gonna matter. But once we do, once we're on fire for Jesus, man, we'll, we'll move past all of that stuff. We'll use all that training. And even if we don't know all the answers to the questions, it doesn't matter because we'll be so excited about what Jesus has done. And that's what needs to happen in our lives. We need to fall deeply in love with Jesus. We need to recognize he's the only hope the people around us have. And so we commit to doing whatever it takes to get the gospel to them. And it starts... Let me just kind of explain this. It starts just like me with my friend, just like these guys with their friend. It starts with your relational network. It just starts with the people that you know in your relational network. God has given you a relational network. He's not given to Pastor Trent. He's not given it to me. He's not given it to your friend. He's given it to you. Okay, this is the way you need to think, okay? Where you live and work and play, what are the relationships that God has given you in those, in those spheres? Okay, where you live. Let's start... Where you live, in your house. Is there anybody in your house who's not a believer in Jesus? Do you have children who are not believers in Jesus? Start there with them. Do you have neighbors and people that you see in your neighborhood who you don't know if they're believers in Jesus, you don't know if they go to church, like you don't know where they stand with God? Who are those people in your neighborhood that you know that you don't know where they stand with God? And then you move out from where you live to where you work or go to school. Who are your, your coworkers and your classmates that you're around every day that you have these relationships with, that you, you, you sit and eat lunch with and you, you send YouTube videos to and all those different things. Like who are those people that you have these relationships with? 
And then where you play, where you do your recreation, the gym or CrossFit or your, your kid's ball team or your kid's cheer squad or whatever it is, that, those, that sphere of recreation, who are the parents, who are the relationships that you have and starting there in that relational network that you have, you commit to doing whatever it takes to introduce those people to Jesus Christ. And then it expands, once your heart is on fire for Jesus and on fire for the people that you know and love, then it expands from there to having the heart that Jesus has for the world and recognizing that there's all these unreached peoples in the world who need the gospel and don't have access to this good news. And so I wanna go when I can, when I'm on summer break or spring break or take vacation and go to these places and, and take the gospel to them. And so it just where you live and work and play and then expanding out into the world. And here's what you do. Say, what can I do with those, those people I have relationships with? Well, the first thing you can do, again, Pastor Trent has covered it the last couple of weeks, is pray. Prayer is incredibly effective at, at changing people's lives. I know sometimes it doesn't look that way, and sometimes it may take time and patience and persistence, but prayer really does make a difference. I think about my own grandmother. Uh, she was uh, um, an alcoholic and very hard life. Because of that, my mom ended up in the Georgia Baptist Children's Home as a little girl, 10 years old, and came to Christ in the Georgia Baptist Children's Home. And so from that time, when she was a teenager through uh, decades, she's praying for her mom and sharing the gospel with her mom. And we're praying for her mom. And a week before her mom died in her 70s, she became a believer in Jesus Christ. And she had her life changed. And she's in heaven today because of a daughter who prayed for her over and over and over again. So who are those people in your life that you are praying for on a regular basis and saying, God, do a work in their life, change their life. First thing you do for your relationships is pray. Second thing you need to do is invite. Invite them to come to church. Here's what's crazy. Tom Rainer in his book, Surprising Insights About the Unchurched, says this, and this is a massive disconnect. 98% of churchgoers 98% will never invite somebody to come to church with them. But 82% of unchurched people say, if somebody invited me to go to church, I would probably go. I mean, think about that disconnect. 98% of Christians never invite anybody. 82% of unchurched people say, somebody invited me, I'd probably go. So, so why not do that? Why not invite your friends and bring them here with you? Let me ask this question. Did it in the first service? It's always, you know, on the spot poll, always dangerous, may not go the way I want. Let me just ask a question. I'm gonna ask you, raise your hand here in a second. If you're in the room today and you're a Christian, okay, you're a follower of Jesus, and you would say, John, the way, humanly speaking, that I became a Christian was I was either part of some church service, a vacation Bible school service, a Sunday school class, a revival service, some activity that surrounded the church, okay? You would say, John, that's how I got saved. Raise your hand if that's true of you. Okay, again, about 66% of the room, okay? So imagine what would happen if all the people in this room who are partners of Foothills Church said, I'm gonna, next week, I'm gonna bring somebody with me to church. 66% of us in this room got saved that way. Imagine what kind of impact that can make. Invite them. Say, come with me. Services are great. You'll really enjoy them. Afterwards, we'll take you to lunch. And then just take them to lunch and just ask, what do you think about the sermon? What questions do you have? How can I try to answer them or get answers to them? Okay, just do that and you'll be amazed at what God might do as a result. Next thing that you can do, it's very simple, 
is give them, give them spiritual material, okay? Give, give Christian biblical material, like give a Bible to your friends or your neighbors, your coworkers, and say, hey, can you just wanna give you a Bible, ask you to start reading it, okay? Or give them some Christian book that's had an impact in your life, or some, some sermon clip, like we have the sermon clips from pa- Pastor Trent's sermons. Share those on Facebook, share those on, uh, on Twitter. Just pass them on to your friends that you know who you don't know where they stand with God. And, and just give them something spiritual, some kind of biblical material that can begin to work in their life. Let me tell you what impact that might have. When I was a pastor in Kentucky, the first church I pastored, there was a guy that was an intern with me studying for ministry. His name was Brian Busby. Brian Busby was the most aggressive witness for Christ I'd ever seen in my life. Like he would, he would witness to the telephone pole outside and say, let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Like he was super aggressive witness for Christ. But here's how Brian became a Christian. Brian was not raised in a Christian home, Okay. And he was, a, he was a star wrestler when he was in high school. And so when he was a junior in high school, leaving school after wrestling practice, he walks outside of his high school. Outside, there's a group of guys called the Gideons who are handing out King James Version Bibles like, like New Testaments and Psalms and Proverbs, okay? And they, they, one of them handed one to Brian. And Brian took it and he said, I knew I was gonna throw it away, but I thought it would be rude to throw it away in front of him. So I slipped it in my pocket and thought, when I get out of sight, I'm gonna, I'm gonna toss this. Well, when he got out of sight, he forgot about it. And so he gets home and he's, he's there, his dresser, he's taking out his keys and his wallet and everything. And then he takes out this, this pocket New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. And he thought, well, before I throw it away, why not just, just read it? And so he just randomly says, I just randomly opened the Bible. And he opened to Proverbs 16, 7 that says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to live at peace with him. And Brian said, I read that verse and I just said to myself, you know what, that's true. That's a true statement. He says, so I randomly flipped to another passage and I looked at it and I read that verse and I said, you know what, that's true. That's a true statement. And did it again, read a verse, that's true. And so then he flipped to the back of that Bible and the back of that Bible is the Romans road. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. Wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you'll confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. And, and Brian got down on the floor of his bedroom and became a believer in Jesus Christ, all because somebody gave him a little Bible. And so who knows what kind of impact that might have. And then the last thing that you need to do is be ready to go to the world. Go on one of our short-term mission trips. Go get a passport. Let me say this. Get a passport so that you're ready to go And then when one of these trips comes up, just say, okay, I know I'm nervous. I I don't know if God's gonna be able to use me, but I'm willing. I'm willing because I wanna wanna be a difference for Jesus. And so get your passport and be ready to go on one of these short-term trips that we do overseas. In fact, if you're at all interested, there's an informational meeting right when we get done in room 202 on all the mission trips that we have coming up this year. And so encourage you. If you have an opportunity just to stay for a few minutes today, go in there, learn about those trips, and commit to going on one of those trips this year and to see how God is going to use you. Listen, there was some point in your life, all right, if you're a believer, there was some point in your life, maybe it was when you first became a Christian, when you, when you were just on fire for Jesus and you were so excited and you didn't know everything, but you were just, man, you were just pumped. Jesus, forgive me my sins. Jesus, give me eternal life. And so I just want other people to know about that. And you were telling people, hey, come see me get baptized. And, and, and so you were sharing with people and you wanted to introduce people to Jesus because you were so excited 
about what he had done for you. And so now maybe that's gone cold and it's not as hot as it used to be. And, and so you just need to think back, think back to whatever point in your life that that was and pray, God, help me. There was a time in my life when I was serving you and I was on fire for you and I was doing things for you. And so help me to remember what that was like and help me to get back there and, and renew that in my life. And there may be some of you here today who would say, John, that's never happened in my life because I'm not, I've never given my life to Jesus. Well, I wanna challenge you today. Jesus is the hero of your story. And if you want your life changed forever, then give your life to Jesus today. Because if, if all of the people who are the partners of Foothills Church, over a thousand partners of Foothills Church, if we were so excited about Jesus that we were willing to do whatever it takes with the people we know and love, there is no telling what God could do with that. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're gonna go into a time of response. I'm gonna ask our section leaders to get ready to serve the church, the Lord's Supper. So here's what we're gonna do. Everybody, heads bowed, eyes closed. Let's explain what's happening. We're gonna, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. In just a second, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. And the section leaders are gonna come around and hand out the bread and the cup. And this is a time that the bread symbolizes the body of Jesus that he gave for us on the cross. The cup symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is a time for us to worship Jesus by remembering what he did for us and celebrating what he did for us. And so if you're here today and you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, then we invite you to take this meal with us. And here's what I want you to do. When they pass it out, I want you to take the bread, take the cup. We're gonna do something a little different than we usually do. I want you to hold on to it, okay? Don't just take it whenever you want. Take the bread, take the cup, hold on to it. We're gonna sing for a couple minutes and I'm gonna come back out and give us some more instructions, okay? So just hold on to it. During this time, worship Jesus, thank him for what he's done for you, celebrate what he's done for you. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe there's some parents in here, you've got smaller children sitting around you, they're not Christians. This is a chance for you. The Bible tells us uh, that when the children of Israel celebrated the Passover meal, Moses said, your children are gonna ask you, why are we doing this? And he says, this is a chance for you to explain to them because we were slaves in Egypt and God rescued us, God saved us. And so if you are here and you're a parent, you've got children around you who are not believers, this is a chance for you to, to explain the gospel to them and say, you can't take this yet. But our prayer is that one day soon you'll give your life to Jesus and you'll be able to take this meal. Use this as an opportunity to share it with them. Or maybe you're here and you're not a believer. You say, John, I'm not a Christian. And you're telling me I shouldn't take this meal because I'm not a Christian. I, I feel excluded. Please hear me and please hear our hearts. We're not trying to exclude you at all. Our prayer, our prayer is this will be the last time you don't take the Lord's Supper. Our prayer is that this, this supper will be an invitation to you to give your life to Jesus and to be changed by him today. So I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna worship Jesus by taking the Lord's Supper. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus right now that as we reflect on what Jesus has done for us by giving his body and by giving his blood, that it would cause our hearts to be on fire for you because of all that you've done for us. And I pray for anybody in the room who doesn't know Jesus, that it would be an invitation to them that today, before they leave, they'll grab a section leader, they'll go to the care and prayer room and they'll say, I want Jesus to change my life today. Father, we ask that you would do that by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Serve the church the supper. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.